you've probably heard of the leaders that have very high expectations and give away the authority and the control to meet those expectations and then provide basically anything that's needed to let people move along in their process. And that sounds great conceptually, doesn't it? Let's have fun and set high expectations. In truth, that's hard work, right? Because excellence is different than perfection. We're not going to be perfect. To me, part of being excellent is failing and knowing what to do after you fail. You need to create that environment where people aren't scared to fail. And the only way I know how to do that is to do it loudly and visibly myself and show what happens afterwards. That failure takes it up a notch. It doesn't take it down a notch. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the past two episodes, we had a great conversation around following your own path and the impact of AI with my friend Stephen Klein, founder of Couriouser.ai. Today, we're looking at leadership from a slightly different vantage point. Our guest, Pam Pryor, claims that she makes finance fun. And after hearing her, you will very likely agree with her. After many years as a CFO for large and medium companies, she started a business that provides finance support to entrepreneurs. She offers services that range from bookkeeping to virtual CFO. She also coaches CEOs on how to run a financially sound business. Finally, she's an author and a speaker. In our conversation, we talked about how to build leadership through a finance lens. Since fun is an important value to Pam, we went deep on how to create a fun work environment that also has a high degree of productivity and high standards of excellence. Finally, we talked about some of the key steps that entrepreneurs need to take when they start a business to make sure that it is sound from a finance standpoint. As I said, Pam claims that she makes finance fun. Well, she certainly made our conversation fun. Enjoy the show. Pam, welcome. Let's start the way I start every episode. Introduce yourself to my listeners and you can take as much or as little time as you want. Well, I won't bore them too much. I am so excited to be here with you. We've talked about this for a while and I'm glad we're doing it. I am Pam Pryor and I am a CFO who lived most of my career, 30 years of it in corporate, grew up in accounting in the corporate world, loved every minute of it, literally from the mailroom to the boardroom over a 30 30 year career and under a couple of truck hoods when I worked for a trucking company and a bakery when I worked for a bakery and at DuPont and DuPont Merck for a good 20 of it. So got a lot of great opportunities and training from people. And after some of those jobs, I started to work with entrepreneurs a little bit in between and started to get the fever because all of a sudden you're not in this corporate giant mess. You're just able to do what needs to be done and not have to politic it. And I'm like, oh, I really like this. So when I took my very last, what I call real job, which is a CFO job at a a billion dollar company and we were selling stuff and they needed some leadership and cleanup. I was in there about three months and I went, yeah, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And so I stuck it out to get done what I'd committed to them to do. But then jumped out and said, I'm going to start doing this for entrepreneurs. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And this, when I say this, I'll put it in quotes, is kind of a very weird thing. But it's, in truth, my goal is to make finance fun and valuable for every small business owner out there. Because it's been such an ill-served market, I think, by my profession for a long time. 
As you think about your early times in your career and some of the experiences you had in corporate America, what were some key moments that influenced the way that you think about how you work with people, how you want to lead, how you want to be led? Truthfully, the very first one, and I go back to this story all the time, was when I was 17 and started in the mailroom at DuPont. And I was one of those lucky ones who actually got my own mailroom. Like I didn't have to work in a big, huge mailroom with hundreds of other people. We had a, an outpost, basically about three blocks away from everybody else. And I kind of owned and ran that room. And what I realized very quickly was that I could make that job fun. And so I made games out of it. I basically tried to beat myself on the mail route, like I've always beat my own time on the mail route. I found the best elevator. I found which elevators or what time you don't want to be on a particular street because of lunch hour. I put tape down on the floor in the room. I don't know if you remember those old mail rooms that had the wall of holes in the wall that put mail. I put tape on the floor and just practiced tossing into the right folder and backed it up to about 10 or 15. And I thought, if I can make this fun, I can make anything fun. And that really as much or more than any other incident probably had the biggest impact on my career because as weird as it is, and even though I got all the technical stills and the, and learned and experienced all of the things you'd expect to learn in a 30-year career, I think one of the things that makes me effective as a CFO to entrepreneurs is that people have fun when we talk. They feel fun and they feel safe and they know it's not going to be a chore. So I think that's a, a really big one for me. It's weird that it's that long ago. I love what you're saying because I agree that fun is a key ingredient in a successful work environment. There's a risk, though, that sometimes the fun becomes more important than the actual work that needs to be done. So for a leader who wants to create a fun but productive environment for their team, what are some tips that you could give that say, okay, this is what you need to do to make it fun? And this is what you need to put in place who at the same time make sure that it is productive and things are still going to get done. You've probably heard of the leaders that have very high expectations and give away the authority and the control to meet those expectations and then provide basically anything that's needed to let people move along in their process. And that sounds great conceptually, doesn't it? Let's have fun and set high expectations. In truth, that's hard work, right? Because there's always a decision between, oof, do I let this go? It's just some fun or are we really meeting the expectations or not? And so it's something that really is a daily, in my mind, a daily opportunity for a leader to sit back and think about, do I have the right balance? And when I say fun, it's if we do create a fun environment for our team and it's very important for me to have that, but that's one characteristic, right? The other characteristics are the other things I mentioned about that first job. I want you to do it as good as you can do it, as well as you can do it. And we work on what what should we call our core value in two words. And we go back and forth. Does it be excellent? Because excellence is different than perfection. We're not going to be perfect. To me, part of being excellent is failing and knowing what to do after you fail. You need to create that environment where people aren't scared to fail. And the only way I know how to do that is to do it loudly and visibly myself and show what happens afterwards. That failure takes it up a notch. It doesn't take it down a notch. It's easy now with a company of eight people, nine people. That is really hard 
in a company like the ones I used to work for, it was fun for me and a cool challenge. And I think I learned a lot there about how to do it because you had bad eggs. You had people that were cancers inside an otherwise great culture, and you had to know how to deal with them and learn how to deal with them. Probably the, the two toughest moments I had with that in my career, just to give some examples, is you have to hit that time where you say, okay, I have to intervene now. And I have to intervene as the person with high expectations, not the laughing person. And I was young. I was probably 30 when I had to do this. And I was a controller for a baking company. And two of the people just refused to get along. They were both excellent employees, like excellent employees. Like if either of them left, we'd have a problem, kind of excellent employees, not for too long, but certainly a problem. And they couldn't stand each other. And like literally one would say the sky is blue and there'd be a fight every single time. So finally I said, I, guys, I can't take this anymore. And I sat each of them down separately and said, you know, you need to decide if your vendetta against so-and-so is worth your job because that's where we are now. Either you figure out how to make this work and respect her and act that way at work, or I'm going to have to let you go. And I was sweating bullets. I'm like, what if they both say we're done? I mean, I was nervous as hell. I didn't know how I was going to cover this base. But that's the truth about leadership, right? And I, th I was watching a movie the other day where they talked about fear and courage. I went in fearful, but you have to have the courage to do the thing and know that sometimes it'll work. That could have been a mistake that cost me and I would have learned from it. So that's kind of the key there. I think it, it the it sounds great when you talk about it academically, but in the mud, it's it's slogging. It's everyday work. It's like marriage is work every day. Leadership is work every day. You have to commit to it and really be uh, ready to make mistakes and learn from them. I love the fact that you brought up mistakes as a learning tool. I'm wondering if you would be willing to share a mistake that you made and what you learned from it. Yeah, I'll share my biggest one. And it's still... It still bothers me. It's that big. I worked for a trucking company and I had an amazing controller. I was the CFO. He was the controller. He was amazing. And he did everything and ran his team pretty well, I thought, because he, but what was happening was he was actually doing all the work and covering for people. And instead of building processes, it was all relying on him. And he was a nice guy, he is still a nice guy, wonderful guy. He just wanted to please right? And I missed that cue. And as a result, he got way overburdened, didn't want to show that he needed help because he was used to being my help. And as a result, we had a massive, and I'll tell you, it was a million dollar fraud that happened on my watch. And as a result of that, I came into work one day and the powers that be met me in the parking lot and said, we fired your boss and we fired your subordinate, but we want to keep you. And I said, wait a minute, here's what happened. And it's because I allowed him to be overburdened. So if anybody's responsible for this, it's me, not him. And they're like, yeah, no, we need you. So you're going to stay. And I didn't. I ended up leaving very quickly because it's just that it was just went against everything. I thought about teamwork, integrity, leadership, you name it. It was just very poorly done. But, you know, I probably should have been fired for that. And what I learned from that, I have now taken with me now, and I have to make sure I don't overcompensate for it, is when somebody says everything's fine, I dig. It's like, I'm going to keep giving you work until you cry, uncle, a job requirement from you is that you cry uncle. 
you need to tell me. You need to have responsibility for telling me when something's not okay. And that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is I realized that I need to adapt and understand how different people, each individual deals under stress. My job is to recognize their stress signals. And that has made me a much better leader ever since that awful, awful fiasco. And all the people have landed in wonderful places. So it's not, you know, it had a happy ending. But, you know, in the moment of those things, it's like your world is ending and you're a failure and you'll never be a CFO again and all those things that that your head starts to think about how awful you are. <laughs> what were some of the mechanisms you used in the moment to cope with that situation? Oh, God, I remember this vividly. I was really upset and I did something that pissed me off. And that is when those, the two, the lawyer and the, the henchmen were in my office telling, you know, after we went inside and they were in my office, I, I cried because I was so upset. And so I was mad at that, but that's wrong. It's okay to cry, but I felt it wasn't at the time. And I remember after they left and after my controller was gone and my boss was gone and the new guy was there sitting in my office and a big, dark, black, heavy feeling is all I can use to describe it. It just felt black and closed in. And I'm like, okay, I have tools for dealing with this. I have to be grateful for things. And I'm like, I can't be grateful for anything. This is stupid. Right now, I can't be grateful. And I thought, well, you have to, Pam. So what are you grateful for? And the only thing I saw through my tunnel vision was a stapler on my desk. So I went, that's stupid. I can't be grateful for a stapler. And then I said, nope. And this is my voice talking to me back and forth, right? Yes, you can be grateful for a stapler. Be grateful for the goddamn stapler, Pam. So I looked at the stapler and I went, I'm grateful for that stapler. And I waited probably a minute, minute and a half. I'm grateful that, you know, it holds things together when I need it to hold things together. Hmm. I'm grateful I have a job where I needed to hold things together. I've had a career where I needed to hold things together. And it just started, like it started so slow. It was like a train starting from backwards, quite honestly, not even a dead stop. But once I kind of got my eyes on that stapler, it was the first step to roll down the hill. And then it just started to... And by the end of what seemed to me to be days, but it was actually probably two or three hours, I, that's when I said, you know, I'm, I'm done here. I'm not staying. And this is great. Whatever's coming next is going to be awesome. So I learned in that moment, gratitude works. And even when you think it won't on your darkest day, find a thing, find some stupid thing that you're like, there's no way I can be grateful for a mouse and start there. Just start with that mouse. That was how I dealt with it in the moment. That's a great lesson. The second thing when I'm hearing this story is the fact that sometimes there are decisions that we make that are not good for us in the moment or for our career, but they go very much against everything that you hold dear. Now, in this case, it seems like this was a pretty black and white situation. It was to me, right? In my mind, what had happened was my fault. And the two guys around me got fired. That was absolutely black and white. If you listen to their stories, they'll tell you it's a little bit gray and that it's not my responsibility that, you know, it was a joint effort, blah, blah, blah. But to me, it was very black and white. And, and to be fair, okay, let, let's be real. I'm in a two income household. 
And I often wonder, I think I would have made the same decision. And I hope I would have, (laughs) is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like we never know until we get to the moment, but I think I would make the same decision, but I had it kind of easy, you know, relative to a lot of people that find themselves in those situations, which is why you really can't judge anybody for the choices they make in those situations or why I can't judge anybody because you just don't know the surrounding circumstances. Well, I love that you said that many people that make hard choices fail to talk about the things that made the hard choice easier. Yeah. That's something that it's important to do. But just go back to where I started with the question. As now the leader and owner of your own company, as an advisor to small entrepreneurs, there are a lot of decisions in the day to day or maybe not in the day to day, but more often that fall a little more in a gray area between your values and the short term good. How do you keep a watch on them to make sure that at some point, well, I'll take this client on because I really need to make payroll. Such a real question. Such a real question about what we do, right? I will tell you that in the beginning, I would take the clients on. There was never anybody who was a crook or trying to do something wrong or anything like that. But I would get on the phone with somebody and be like, yeah, this is going to be a tough client. And I'd take them on anyway, because I needed money. I needed to make payroll. What I found with when I went back and did a review of all the people I've worked with since 2016, when I started doing this, and the ones where things had not gone well, there was a feeling I had on the initial call that I was able, that was consistent across all of them. And it was always a different thing, right? But it had the same physical feeling. I didn't know how to describe it. But it was in my chest. And there was just a, a thing that I've now come to recognize as my intuition. And Every time I took one of them on, there was a big problem. And I ended up, and I was a a bridge burner for a while there. I'd go out with a bang. It's like, you can mess with me, but I'm going to win. You know, you, I don't like doing this, but I'm good at it and I'm always going to win. And I, and I thought, you know, that's not the game really, but it took me a good two, three years to get past that and go, you know, you got to let this go gracefully. You made the mistake early on. You ignored your intuition. This person needs something you can't give them right now. So let's figure out how to part ways separately. So I've gotten much better at not taking those clients on because I know they cost more in the end. Like I, as a CFO, I can go, oh yeah, that may bring me money in right now, but it's going to cost me more in the end because I'm a big believer that it's not just the money. It's the money, your energy and your time. That are the three things we're constantly trying to balance. And if my energy is such that I don't want to get up and do the work that day, it's not going to work no matter how big my bank account is. It's just not going to work. So yeah, we've taken a couple hits over time. I wasn't making money in the beginning of this thing. And that was difficult. I want to shift a little bit. And this is a, a little bit of a reflection of a conversation that you and I had when we met back at Podcast Movement last summer. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting about to me about the way that you see your role and, and why I wanted you here is the fact that you're looking at finance as a way to establish leadership for a company, for a business. So we'd love to get a little bit into this topic. Let's start from when you were a finance leader in larger or or even smaller organization. How did you think about your leadership role and how did that intersect with other leaders? I love it. So I got really lucky at the beginning of my actual accounting career. Once I was out of the mailroom and had gotten the degrees and started the accounting work. And for 10 years inside a joint venture, I had 
what I consider to be the best financial leadership in the world. And they grew me from an arrogant little pissant who was really good, but very full of myself into somebody who understood that how you do what you do is as important as what you do. And they dedicated themselves to turning us all into those leaders. And so I have that gift of that example. And my leadership style changed drastically while I worked for them. And it, and, and I was a much happier person as a result, also older. And with age comes, you know, comes a lot. But once I actually got to the point where I was sort of the the leader of the organization, it became clear to me that a lot of CEOs didn't have one really important piece of confidence to be the leaders that they really wanted to be. And it had to do with their finances. So in a room of a thousand entrepreneurs, if I asked how many were confident about the finances in their company, maybe a hundred would raise their hands. And I, then I started talking to people individually and even the ones who raised their hands weren't as confident as they're putting their hand up in the air had been. And I knew that they couldn't be the leaders they wanted to be to create, build, and then either scale or scale and exit their company if they didn't get the confidence around the numbers in the organization. So that's why I said, okay, we're going to do this a little bit differently. I'm not just going to create P&Ls and balance sheets and tell them what to do. We're going to actually connect them to the story that these numbers tell. Because once they know that their story ties to any numbers that somebody's going to poke or prod at, be it a bank or a buyer or an employee or a customer, their level of confidence goes up drastically because they know I can hire people now. I can fire people now. I can add more marketing spend. I can get everybody out for professional development because we budgeted for it. Um, and it just changes the nature of their ability to lead. So that's how I think they intersect really, really well. So a lot of entrepreneurs start a business because they have a specific passion or an expertise or a brilliant idea. And very few of them are initially concerned with their finances or get initially the understanding of the role that proper finances play. Mm -hmm. How do you convince somebody in that role that on one hand, it is important. And on the other hand, actually, as a leader, they should have a firm grip on it. Yeah. First of all, I don't usually have to convince people that it's important because by the time they get to me, they figured that out the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't usually have to do that part. But what they think is it's going to be misery. And so they often will put off dealing with it because it's like, oh, I hate it. It's going to be awful. I hate it. But if I did have to convince somebody, I think what I do is the way I do anytime I had to influence somebody to do something is learn how to communicate with them, what's important to them, and how can I tie what I know they need to their goals. And in fact, I've just I've written another book on this because what we're saying to founders, I am now, is you know, you've done something most people don't do. You've taken a business from nothing to something. And 95% of people fall out of that pool. So you're one of the 5% now. But that person that got you here is a very different person than the one that's going to get you to the next place. So we start with what is it you want to see as your outcomes? What is the why for you? What is it you want? And then once I know that, it becomes very easy for me just because of how well I know finance accounting to hook what I need to do to those wants and say, oh, you want that? Here's what we do. 
You want that? Here's what we do. And if I can't make those connections for them while we're still doing the awful sausage making stuff underneath, which is just hard for any entrepreneur, it's like an ongoing proctology exam, then I lose that client, quite frankly, because the impatience with it, they don't, they, I, I haven't been able to correctly connect what the outcome is going to be to them to make, make them realize that we can get there. There's just a few kind of ucky steps at the beginning. Based on the experience you've had with helping entrepreneurs that got to a certain point, and maybe there was a lot of things that could have been set up correctly from the financial standpoint. What are some like really easy, practical things that somebody who's starting a business should do and should start thinking about? It all comes back to three that I would say. One is once you decide that what you're doing is not a hobby anymore and it's actually a business, separate your personal and your business finances, like accounts. And this, this is not complicated. It just means if you have a checking account and you're doing everything out of one checking account, get a second one and do your business out of that and do your personal stuff out of your personal account. And yes, when we're in the beginning, we do have to pass money back and forth between those accounts because you got to put food on the table. And if you're out of money and haven't paid yourself, there's an issue. But two things that this does One is it makes you realize that you ultimately do need this business to pay you and the sooner the better. As long as it's all blended in one account, you kind of lose that, that imagery, that, that effectiveness of my business is not making the money yet that it needs. Whereas if it's isolated and you're looking at the expenses in one specific account, you can know this is doing what I want it to do or it's not doing what I want it to do. Second thing that does is it sets you up for bookkeeping when the time comes. So that when the time comes, you don't have to spend a fortune on somebody to do your taxes that year to literally plow through your personal bank statement and figure out what's business, what was personal, what was business, what was personal. Nine times out of 10, when I hear from somebody for the first time, it's, I had to do taxes last year and I hated it and I never want to do that again. How do I keep from doing it? And the first thing we do is split those two accounts out. Same thing with credit card. If you use a credit card for personal stuff, use a different one for the business. You don't have to go through the process of setting yourself up as a company. In order to do that, you can set up two personal bank accounts and use one for business and one for personal. But the second thing I'd recommend on top of that is go ahead and set it up as a business. Like literally register your business name, make it a thing, make it an entity. And the reason I say that, again, is to reemphasize that although you're putting a lot into this thing right now, eventually you want it giving more back to you. And if you separate it and you establish it as an entity, it becomes something you can have expectations of. So that's the other benefit to just setting it up as that thing. It's a couple hundred bucks a year to renew your registration. I know it, but do that thing. Because then everything, again, is all set up for very clean bookkeeping when the time comes that you have to do that because you've succeeded. Like what we're preparing you for here is success, right? So those are the two biggies that I would do. Third is pay yourself. Pay yourself. So and do it early. And I got into this mess because I was new, because I was just starting out. I was underpricing and not making enough. So I'm like, okay, well, I just won't pay myself, but then I'll hire my first bookkeeper instead. And so I grew a step ahead of what I should have been paying myself for a long time. And 
you can avoid that. It's like when you tell your kids to always put money in a savings account, like you'll be able to retire at 40 if you do that right. It's like if I, if I were going to give one lesson that I could to anybody, it would be, it would be that one, you know, just do it from the start and everything changes. Even if it's only putting a hundred dollars in your pocket, know how much you want to make. Start paying yourself. That is a key foundational expense of the business. And then you'll grow around that instead of avoiding it. So that those are my one, two, and three. That's fabulous. And I think this is an excellent point to stop the quote unquote business part of the conversation. So if somebody wants to find you, mm -hmm. where should they go? I'm on pamprior.com is my website. And on every social, I'm Pam S as in Sam Pryor, Pam S. Pryor. And so that's the best place to see kind of what we're all about. Fabulous. So now we're going to move to the three personal questions. The first one is, what is a hobby or a passion that you have outside of your work? And how has that impacted your work? You're going to laugh because it's such a finance geeky passion. I am passionately diving down the web hole of decentralized finance and Web3 and crypto. And it's a massive hobby of mine right now. From the outside, it looks like just more work. But it's really interesting. I'm just finding it fascinating. That's been kind of an obsession now for the last two years. That's great. Second question. This is my favorite question of the whole podcast. It is every era has a business expression or a cliche that is so overused that it becomes meaningless. Which is the one that drives you crazy? It's interesting because I hate it and I love it. All right. It's overused, but it's correct which is a problem. And it's don't let the highs get you too high and the lows get you too low. And it just sounds, I think it sounds trite, but yet it's been something that I've used to set my bumpers and it's really worked. So I love it and I hate it at the same time. I'm trying to think, I'm sure there's a pet peeve one that if I heard it, I, I like tonight when I go to bed, I'm gonna be like, oh, that's the one I should have said. But right now I can't think of one, darn it. <laughs> That's great. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. If you go the body route of food or a recipe that you love right now or a drink, if you go the soul route, something more cultural or artistic, it could be a book, a piece of music, a movie, TV show, play, piece of art, sculpture, something that feeds your soul right now. Right now, and it does come and go and it varies, but right now, I would say feeding my soul is an evolution of my faith from the basic Christianity I was brought up in into recognizing and learning through various books. I mean, everything from books about Buddha to conversations with my family or some atheists in the family to Abraham to, you know, you name it that it's all one big connected net. And that, and coming back to that day in and day out is absolutely feeding my soul right now. And on the food side, my, my, my wife makes the best tuna fish casserole one recipe that my mom used to make. And anytime I need to feed my, feed my, my body, it's going to be the tuna fish casserole. <laughs> Excellent. Maybe you'll send me the tuna fish casserole recipe. I can put it on the website. <laughs> glad to. We've been eating it for 60 years, so I'm glad to share it. <laughs> great. Pam, thank you so much for being such a great guest and for your insights. I appreciate it. What great questions. It's great to see you again. 
thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may like it and tell them that they should listen to it. Also, you may have listened to every single episode so far, in which case I'm really thankful. But most likely you haven't, so go find a few others and listen to them. If you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows rating and reviews like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Give us five stars. Stay tuned because after the credit, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information on the episode and all the links, go to the website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can also email me at dino at al4ep.com. Make sure you follow the podcast on whatever social platform you're on. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo. I recorded it remotely with Swatcast and edited in the script with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's from her album The Hammer and the Heart, and it's called Bitter Moon. Say you're me.